Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. This episode is a little different than my other episodes as it's available for ASHA CEUs through Tassel Continuing Education. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs, then stay on until the very end because that is where I provide information on how to register for automatic ASHA reporting. Before we get started, we have some information to share. Let's start with the objectives. As a result of this activity, you will be able to identify three strategies for working with children with dyslexia in a language-based learning disability program within the schools. You will be able to define the Orton-Gillingham approach and identify six foundational principles. Describe three treatment methods for working with children with dyslexia in a private practice setting. Describe three special considerations that you need to keep in mind when treating dyslexia and identify three resources for working with children with dyslexia. Now let's talk about the financial and non-financial relationships that we need to disclose. I have ownership interests in Speechy Side Up LLC and Tassel Learning LLC, and I receive royalties from the Lou Knows What To Do book series. I'm also a member of ASHA Special Interest Group 12. Lauren has ownership interest in Lauren Klein Speech Therapy LLC and her Teachers Pay Teachers store, but she has no non-financial relationships to disclose. Finally, let's go over the agenda. You guys are going to love this topic today. Lauren is just so knowledgeable on this topic and really shares some great information. So we're going to talk about our introductions and backgrounds first, of course, and then we'll get into a discussion about working with children with dyslexia within the schools. We'll talk about the Orton-Gillingham approach. Then we'll talk about treating dyslexia in private practice, and then some considerations that you need to keep in mind when treating this population, and then all of her favorite go-to resources for working with this population. Today, I'm joined by Lauren Klein, a speech-language pathologist and private practice owner in Colorado. Lauren specializes in dyslexia and is certified in the Orton-Gillingham approach, which is a program to teach literacy to individuals with dyslexia. In February 2020, Lauren went from service provider to being a parent of a child with a brain condition. This diagnosis and experience during COVID nonetheless has provided her with unique insight into what it's like to navigate therapy services as a parent of a child with developmental delays. Now that we've got all that covered, let's get started. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for coming today. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited about this topic and to learn more about you. So why don't you start by introducing yourself and we'll get into the topics and questions after that. Okay. Yes. So as you mentioned, I am a mom of two young girls and I have my own private practice in Northern Colorado. So I went to graduate school in Boston and I was super lucky that being at the graduate school that I was, they gave us the opportunity to work with a student who has dyslexia. It was a part of our required course load. It was a part of our required practicum. And at the time, I honestly had no idea that it was something that speech pathologists could do. So once I had graduated, I kind of knew that I wanted to have my own private practice and I wanted to specialize in dyslexia. Um, and after I did my clinical fellowship in a school, I decided, okay, schools are really great. And I was really fortunate to be in the school that I was in. But like I said, I knew I wanted to have that flexibility. So I started, um, I officially started my private practice just after my oldest daughter was born. So in early 2018, uh, I say officially, because at this point I did all of the technical things like getting a business license, setting up an LLC, all of those sorts of things. And at that time I was just kind of getting my feet wet and I knew my husband and I knew we wanted to have another daughter and then, or excuse me, another child. So my husband and I knew at that time that we wanted to have another kid. And then my goal was that after we were done having kids and I was done with maternity leave, I wanted to go back and really start building my private practice. Of course, things really never go as you plan. And my daughter, Grace, who is my youngest daughter, was diagnosed with hydrocephalus when she was four months old. And like you said, this was last February, so February of 2020. Um, around that time as well, she really wasn't hitting a lot of her milestones. So her pediatrician had recommended to us that we have an early intervention evaluation. Honestly, at this point, I was just very overwhelmed a little bit nervous, a little bit scared, not really knowing what to expect with all of these things kind of coming at the same time. But I was really grateful that we were able to schedule an early intervention evaluation 
honestly, right before lockdown had started. So it was late February, early March, we had a physical therapist and an occupational therapist uh, come over and they were absolutely fabulous. Fast forward about three months later and Grace was having her first um, IFSP progress meeting. And at this point, my husband sat me down and he said, you know what, we're really working on Grace's gross motor skills right now, but do you think she is hitting all of her speech and language milestones? And I just remember sitting there and thinking to myself, I think she is, but I'm really not a hundred percent sure. Now at this point, I haven't worked with the birth to three population since graduate school, since one of my, my practicums. So at this point, I kind of sat down and I looked at the ASHA website. I remember taking just some basic CEU courses, trying to refresh my memory, but in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, you know, Grace is predisposed to having speech and language issues because of her hydrocephalus. So I just kept thinking, you know, if this were another family, what would I recommend for them? What would I feel most comfortable recommending to them? And it was at this point that I told Spencer, I was like, I want to ask for another speech pathologist to evaluate Grace. I want, if she does qualify, I would love for another speech pathologist to provide her with services because I think that's what's going to be best for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, we're really fortunate. I reached out to a family friend who is a speech pathologist and, um, I just remember getting this email from her and she was just like, you are doing such a great thing by recognizing that maybe this isn't your area of strength and this isn't your area of expertise and you're doing what's best for your daughter. And I just remember being so appreciative of her, not only as a speech pathologist, but just as another mom, as another parent reassuring me that it's okay to recognize when you don't have all of the strengths or it's not your specialty. It's okay. Just like in private practice, you know, it's okay to refer a potential client to someone else. It's exactly the same thing with your own child. So she referred me to one of her friends um, who is an early interventionist speech pathologist and also does some private practice work as well. She and I had a wonderful conversation and I remember her telling me, you know what, your daughter has already qualified for early intervention. She's already on an IFSP because of this. And because early intervention is so family centered, you can just ask your case manager for an evaluation. You can request me to be your evaluator and your SLP and we'll go from there. I remember also thinking at this time, like, wow, I know so little about early intervention laws. I know so little about what is offered to families or what they're allowed to ask for. And I think that's been a really important part of the past year since Grace has gotten this diagnosis and we've really immersed ourselves in physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy is um, the research and the information is out there. And sometimes you just have to sit down and you have to advocate for yourself. You have to ask good questions. And we've been really lucky to be connected with such great therapists. Um, And I remember this SLP pretty much saying like, you know what, if she doesn't qualify, I can certainly see you privately, but most likely we'll be able to get her to qualify. We'll be able to get her services. So over the past nine months, Grace has gotten um, physical therapy, occupational occupational therapy, and speech therapy. Um, The SLP has really just opened my eyes to so many great things that I don't think as an SLP, I would have known things I wouldn't have known to look for um, and things I didn't realize Grace needed help with. Um, She did some really awesome work with some sensory issues that Grace was having. We worked a lot on feeding and swallowing and drinking. Um, Grace now has some basic language goals and we're starting to look at some oral motor goals, thinking about articulation down the road, just different things that not having the experience and not having really the background knowledge I would have never known to, to, to look for. Um, So I'm really, really grateful that we have been connected with her and that we've, even in the world of COVID, you know, I think some of us as therapists who have had to transition to providing services online, being a parent of a child who receives services all virtually, you think about like the extra work that goes into it and the extra amount of parent education that you have to do. And rather than you being able to to put your hands on a kid or, or help them out, you know, in a multi-sensory way, it's all pretty much one way of doing things. And the way that um, we've been able to learn from these therapists and, and the growth I've been able to see in Grace over the past nine months has been has been really wonderful. That's great. It's awesome that you found such a good team right off the bat. Cause I want, I imagine that's not the case for a lot of families. 
Yes, I, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, Grace had her, um, her annual IFSP meeting a couple weeks ago. And I was laughing because I've never met these people in real life. I've, I, other than the OT that we met once, I've never met these people, but I just felt like, honestly, they're a part of our family in, in over the past year of having, you know, lockdown and not doing a lot of anything. I, I really looked forward to, to these times where I could meet with these people. They could give me feedback on, on what's going well, on what's not going well, on things that I could practically do rather than just worrying about grace. Um, and my husband and I looked at each other at one point in the meeting and we just, I broke down crying, just thanking these people. Cause like you said, I think we've been really lucky to find such a great team. Um, and like you said, I don't think everyone is as fortunate right off the bat. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. And, you know, kudos to you for recognizing that it's not an area of strength for you and that, you know, being serviced by another SLP is probably going to be the best option for her. And also it takes that pressure away from you as being, you know, a mom to her. It's, you have to turn off the therapist mode at some point. So, you know, at least you had that therapist to provide that feedback, to coach you on what to do. Um, but you also had like that quality time with your daughter as well. Yes, that is, that is such a great point that as, as moms, I think as moms and SLPs, our brains are always going in, in many different directions and it, it's hard to turn our, our brains off, but, you know, she, our SLP provided us with some really great feedback where I felt like there were certain times during the day that, you know, I could, I could practice these strategies with grace. We could focus on certain things, but knowing that I put my all in during that time, it gave me a time to, to take a step back and to just enjoy her being a baby. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So I imagine this has also really influenced the way that you treat your own clients through private practice, you know, dealing with COVID and having to switch to possibly health services. I'm sure that's impacted you as well. And being on the other side as a parent, you kind of explained that um, you recognize the additional needs that were required through teleservices. So I'm curious to hear how that's influenced your private practice um, and specifically the clients that you service uh, with dyslexia. So if you're ready, I would love to start diving into our dyslexia topics. Yes, absolutely. Great. So let's talk about what it was like to specialize in dyslexia and work in an LBLD program in the public schools. And please explain what LBLD is as well for anybody who's not familiar, because I don't know what it means. <laughs> sure. Um, so like I said, so when we talk about LBLD, language-based learning disabilities, so okay. dyslexia is a language-based learning disability. And I was very fortunate, like I said, to be introduced to the or Gillingham approach in graduate school. Um, I remember I was working with a fourth grader with dyslexia at the time, and we had that one semester of in our in-house clinic when we were required to spend a whole semester working with someone who was familiar with the Orton-Gillingham approach, who had been trained in it and work with a client. I was initially really drawn to it because I felt like it was very structured. It was very systematic, but I also loved how individualized it could be. And seeing the growth that I saw in my client over the semester was great. And I mean, as we all know, reading can be such a powerful thing at any age. It can be so powerful for young kids, you know, just falling in love with different sorts of characters. Now, when we're older, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, reading is just so powerful. And seeing these kids learn to love reading was really powerful to me. So when I was looking for jobs for my clinical fellowship, I decided I wanted to work with kids and I started to look around the area and I came across a job listing for a middle and high school in the North shore of Massachusetts. And what I loved about it was there was the opportunity to do a lot of work with kids with dyslexia. So the, um, our special education director, she, when she came in and she got the job, she helped to establish this in-house language-based learning disabilities program in our school. In the town that I was working in, there also happened to be a private school that specialized in dyslexia and language-based learning disabilities. And there were times where we would lose students to the school because they would be able to service the kids better. I loved our special education director's kind of philosophy behind it is she wanted our school to be able to provide these kids with these services, you know, to give them the least restrictive environment, to give them the chance to still ride the bus to school with their friends, to still participate in field day, to still go to their neighborhood school. 
So her first goal was to create um, an intensive reading and written language program at the elementary school. And then when I had started, it had been a year of having it at the middle school level. So I was the only SLP. I was in both the middle and the high school. And while I had the opportunity to see your typical speech and language kids, my main job was to help out with this language-based learning program. So my room was connected to the Earl room. It was called Earl because it's intensive reading and written language. That's what we just decided to call our program. Um, but I, a majority of my caseload was made up of these students. So I would provide either one-on-one -on -one or um, me and two other students reading tutorials. So Orton Gillingham approached reading tutorials. Um, I would also help co-teach our language-based English class. And then I also co-taught the language-based study skills class. So a lot of these kids, you know, they were still going around to either their science, their social studies, any other classes, they had the opportunity to go to some of those classes. And then so they would come back for their study skills class and we would work on note-taking or we would work on studying for tests, but we would do it in a language-based way. What I loved about the program and what our school offered them was it was, they had the opportunity to be in the program as much or as little as they needed. So at a bare minimum, the students would come to our program for their English class. And it was a language-based English class that I co-taught with either the teacher or the reading specialist that we had. Um, however, if the kids needed more support, then our school also offered them a language-based science class, a language-based social studies class, and a language-based math class. And what was really great was we would constantly be, you know, as we always do, we're constantly working with a diagnostic mindset where, you know what, they seem to be doing really well in their science class. It's been a semester. Let's talk to the families. Let's see if they feel okay with their student transitioning into the general ed science class. We will still support them, but our, our end goal was to always get them back into the general ed classes. We would just provide them with the language-based supports that they would need, always knowing that we could support them in their study skills classes or kind of um, reintroduce that support in the small group classes if they needed it. Wow, that sounds really comprehensive. So when you say language-based, what does that like entail? So a lot of our students would require um, different sorts of supports that weren't always available to them in the general ed classes. So when it comes to um, one example, we would be would be always providing visuals for them. So let's say we were we were taking notes, we would always make sure that we're doing we're we're looking at the word, we're providing the definition for them, um, and then we are providing a picture for them, or we're we're making sure that they have a picture. Um, a lot of our classes would incorporate technology for them. So whether that's speech to text or text to speech, it would be teaching explicitly teaching them how to do it, um, and then eventually having them become independent with these sorts of. Um, strategies and these sorts of uh, modifications and accommodations that they could use when they go out into the general ed class. We also did a lot of thematic based teaching. So if we were learning about, let's say we're learning about the Mayflower in social studies, we would then bring that text over into our English class and we would we would talk about it then. And a lot of the the explicitly taught reading strategies that the students would learn in their reading tutorials, we would make sure that we carried those over into their all of their other classes too, so that they had the opportunity to carry over and practice these sorts of things. And then when it comes to writing, I would say a lot of our language-based learning strategies for writing, um, we worked a ton on pre-writing strategies, so a lot on on, on slowing down a lot of brainstorming, a lot of graphic organizers, a lot of explicitly taught thematic vocabulary. That's great. Thanks for listing some of those strategies that you use. That's really helpful. Now, if an SLP wants to specialize in dyslexia, it sounds like you kind of had the opportunity since grad school. That was kind of my experience with AAC. But if someone's like looking to specialize now, where would you recommend that they start? I would certainly recommend you look at the International Dyslexia Association website. It is such a great location where you can find really good information for professionals. You can find information if you want to pass along to families. They have so many resources and they also have 
um, a drop down tab where they show you different programs where you can be um, trained and accredited by the International Dyslexia Association. So I have gone through um, the Orton Gillingham Academy. I'm familiar with that because the reading specialist at the school, the middle school I was working at, she is an Orton Gillingham fellow, which means she is able to train other practitioners in the Orton Gillingham approach. So I had the opportunity to take a couple of courses with her when I was in Boston. When I moved back to Colorado, knowing I wanted to specialize in this, I went onto the Orton Gillingham Academy's website and I saw that there was another Orton Gillingham fellow here in Colorado. At that time, I took her course. Um, it's called the associate level course. So it's just the basic level of, of being trained in the Orton Gillingham Academy. I took her associate level course. And then after that, to officially become certified, you're required to do a 100 hour supervised practicum. So I started back in January of 2020 and I've been working. I am actually just finishing up my application now, but it's 100 hours working with a student. It's 10 observed sessions where I record myself. I send it to my supervisor. She provides me with feedback and then um, completing some pre and post assessments, doing some readings. So it's a pretty comprehensive process, but it's been the best learning experience to become certified. Um, and like I said, this is only my experience. I do know though the IDA has many other programs that they considered are accredited. So I, I recommend looking there. Wow. That sounds very comprehensive. You must be very dedicated to this area. And I'm, that's great that you're wanting to like specialize in it for your clients. Well, thank you. So let's talk about the Orton Gillingham approach and why, you know, you kind of chose that one and then maybe what it's compared to, like what other approaches are there for dyslexia? When you talk about structured literacy in general, you talk about in general students being taught in a very um, explicit and systematic way. I can't say I'm extremely familiar with a ton of other approaches. I know that there are a lot of Orton Gillingham based programs. And what I mean by that is um, there are some programs where some people who are trained in the Orton Gillingham approach have created their own program with their own word list or their own um, independent decodable readers, things like that. But I'll go into what I am familiar with, which is essentially the Orton Gillingham approach, which like I had said, is a structured approach to teaching reading and spelling. So the overall goal when we're teaching students with dyslexia is to give them reliable rules about reading and spelling that they can learn and fall back on. So rather than being a structured program where you follow um, you know, a very specific and rigid scope and sequence, and you have to use these words when teaching this concept, followed by this concept. Orton Gillingham is essentially based on six principles, and then you kind of tailor your own, you have your scope and sequence, and you adjust it accordingly based on the student that you're working with. So the first principle is this idea that it's systematic and sequential. So when we're teaching it, when we're teaching reading and spelling, we always build on previously taught material. So we explicitly teach it and then we always build on it. So we're going to go from least complex to most complex. The next principle is that it's multi-sensory, which I have learned is certainly a challenge when you are working with kids via teletherapy, but it's something that, you know, it, it's, it's challenged me and I think it's made me a better practitioner, but always trying to incorporate multiple senses. So the visual, the auditory, the tactile, and the kinesthetic throughout your entire session to really help those kids build, you know, those brain connections in different ways. Thirdly, Orton Gillingham is prescriptive. So your lesson plan is based on um, what you have previously taught them and you are making decisions based on the needs of the children that you're working with. It's diagnostic. So we're constantly informally assessing kids and basing our lessons on what they currently know, maybe what they might be struggling with. We recognize, oh, even though I taught this to her a couple weeks ago, you know, it seems to be we've forgotten it. I'm going to pause. I might work in a few Review lessons, we're constantly looking at what, what they're learning and what they, they seem to have mastered and not mastered. Um, it's explicit. So we don't want kids guessing at words. We don't want them guessing at any strategies. Instead, we want to directly and explicitly teach them that English can be 
predictable and that it doesn't need to be frustrating and that they can use their toolbox of strategies to help them read. Uh, and finally, it's flexible. So based on how they are doing, certainly you're welcome to change your, your course of action, change your plan, change what you are doing to, to better suit them. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing those six principles. So I'm going to summarize them really quick for anybody that was following along. The first is systematic and sequential multi-sensory is number two, then prescriptive diagnostic explicit and flexible. Correct. Great. So do you mind talking a little bit more about the multi-sensory and kind of how you've adapted for teletherapy? Yes. So I am fortunate that a majority of the students that I see are still very close. They're, they're nearby. So I still have the opportunity to drop off right when COVID started. And right when I decided to switch to teletherapy, I created a little goodie bag of things that I thought would be helpful. So when working with students with um, dyslexia and in the Orton-Gillingham approach, some of the multisensory things that you might see used are sand trays. So when doing what is called the visual drill where students see a letter, let's say they see the letter A, they name the letter A, and then they might trace in a sand tray the letter A while saying A says at an A. And you want that multi-sensory piece where they're tracing either in a sand tray or they're tracing on a bumpy board or they are tracing uh, maybe in a rice tray, all things that I have in my office. But when you think about COVID, either you have to disinfect them or kids might not have these available at their house. I was able to connect with some other SLPs or some other dyslexia practitioners and see what they had been using. So at that point, I created a little goodie bag of things to provide to my clients. So for example, I found really great, I found um, bumpy boards, which are just kind of like, I would say like needle point boards, just like plastic ones. So I got all of my clients, some of those, I filled some bags up with shaving cream and paint and I taped them closed to have those. I have some glitter sheets. And I distributed those to all of, all of my kiddos pretty much saying like, I want you, this is your own, you can have these on hand. So when we practice, you, you can make sure you're still practicing. We do a lot of sky riding. We do a lot of arm tapping where let's say we're learning a, a sight word or a learned word or a red word. Um, we might tap out the letters on our arm. When we are spelling, we always make sure, I like to use, sometimes we use unifix cubes. So the little cubes that you might use to build in like a math class. But again, via teletherapy, we've switched just to um, using some spelling strategies with our hands. So sounding out words always with our hands or tapping on the desk, always trying to think of ways to get, to get these kids moving and incorporating different, different um, senses any way that you can. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those. Um, I had like written down sand trays, sensory bins, bumpy boards, glitter sheets, Univix cubes, and you mentioned a bunch of other great ones too. So people can just rewind and rewind. <laughs> That's not a podcast term, is it? Um, go back and listen to those over again if they want to list them out. But I love the idea that you brought over goodie bags. You could even mail goodie bags, right? Like, you know, I know you were able to do it before COVID got really serious, but at this point, if someone's still not able to see a client in person, they could certainly mail it too. Yes, you're exactly right. And I think something I didn't mention that, that I remembered is even just asking parents ahead of time, um, does, do you happen to have a box of crayons or maybe some fun markers or a small whiteboard, just ways to make it a little bit more interesting and parents are I've had really wonderful parents that I've worked with that are like you know what I'll go and get some glitter pens or I'll pick up a, a mini whiteboard or some fun some fun colors just to to make things a little bit more interesting but like you said it's definitely possible that now if I were to start up with a new a new kid and I wasn't able to to drop things off for them or the parents didn't have the resources to get them it would be very easy to just create a little multi-sensory goodie bag to to send them their way to help make instruction a little more interesting. Right. I love that. So, um, you may not know this on the top of your head. I just want to ask what is the, like, what does the research say? Where's the connection between that multi-sensory piece and spelling? I mean, I guess specifically, like if you're 
writing or spelling a letter and you're getting that tactile feedback, like how is that more beneficial than maybe writing it with a pen or a pencil? So that's really interesting. So overall, I think the, the more senses you're able to bring in when teaching and practicing the more likely a student is to remember it. So having these different senses is going to build the brain connections better. So for, I'll give you an example of when we do spelling, we do something called, um, all the spelling that we do at the word level is called simultaneous oral spelling. So what that means is I provide the student with a word, they must then repeat the word back to me. So the auditory component, they're listening, they then verbally produce the word back to me. And this is just to ensure that they heard the word correctly, especially online. The number of times I might say a word, they think they hear a word, the dog barks, they hear, they misread the word, you know, having, ensuring that they're hearing the word is really important. Then what I have them do is they will either use unifix cubes or like I said, more recently, we've just been using our fingers to kind of sound out words is before they even pick up the pencil, they have to sound out the words using their hands. So for example, if we're using, if we're spelling the word, um, let's say we're spelling the word splat. Okay, so I say splat, my student repeats back to me splat. They hold up their hand and starting with their thumb, they say splat, okay, splat, which has five sounds. And the number of times that we have breakdowns at this level, at the phoneme level, this is why this part is so important because students may think that they hear it or because there's that beginning blend there, they miss a sound, which means that then they would miss a letter when spelling it. So instead of splat, we have spat. Um, so slowing down and then what they're required to do after they give me the sounds, again, before they pick up the pencil, they point to each of their fingers and they now tell me, okay, S says S. P, L, L, A, excuse me, A, A, and then T is the letter T. So they give me all the letters. And then as they're writing it, I always remind them to tell their hand what to say. So as they're writing it, again, incorporating that multi-sensory piece, they pick up their pencil. As they're writing it, they say S, P, L, A, T. Then they read the word back to me as that last step. So incorporating all of those senses really ensures that they have heard the word correctly. They really understand it at that phoneme level. And then they put it, they, they make that connection in their brain. Okay, these are the speech sounds that I'm hearing. These are the letters that are tied to those sounds. I can then spell the word based on the previous learned spelling rules that I have taught them. Oh, wow. Okay, thank you so much for illustrating that. I think that example is gonna be really helpful for um, people who are listening. I appreciate it, that. Sure. So let's talk a little bit more. Let's dive into this um, treating dyslexia in private practice. I know we kind of briefly touched on what it's been like to do it via teletherapy, but just in general private practice, what is it like? Yes. So I, knowing that I wanted to do it, I did a little bit of research and I had followed some other private pra practitioners, um, you know, online or on social media, done a little bit of research. And I decided that when I, when I first started, I wanted to be private pay only, mainly because I didn't know how large my caseload was going to be. I didn't want to go through the insurance process right away. And from what I have learned from speaking with other SLPs and research is that a lot of times insurance isn't going to cover this sort of treatment. You know, each insurance is different and whether or not the student has other diagnoses, then they might, insurance might cover it. Um, so I am private practice only, and my students have all, so far, all of my students have come with me with a dyslexia diagnosis. Now, a newer thing is that speech pathologists can diagnose dyslexia, but it's just not something that I, given my, my kiddos, it's not something that I have ever had to do. But whenever I, I start with them, I always do some, just some informal baseline assessments to see, you know, what they have learned, what um, some strengths, some weaknesses, things like that. And even though kids may say like, oh, I've learned the, the doubling rule in school, just because kids have been exposed to something in school, not saying anything against the schools, but just because they might've been exposed or learned something in schools, they might not have mastered it yet, which is why I always do just some baseline assessments. 
And then all of my kids, I see two to three times a week. Um, each session is about 45 to 60 minutes, kind of depending on, on what we're, what we're accomplishing that day or their attention level, the time of day that I might see them, you know, we all get tired at the end of the day. Um, and then a couple of my students do have other speech and language um, goals that they are targeting in school. So while my main focus with them is, is always the reading and spelling, there are some times that I do incorporate some of those strategies just because it, it, it's easy to tie in. And because most people with dyslexia do have underlying problems with phonological awareness, I always make sure to start my sessions with some sort of phonological or phonemic awareness. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing that. So what type of activities are you doing to address the phonological or phonemic awareness? So it's usually a, a, a pretty quick, and again, this is where the multi-sensory piece comes in, but it's usually just a minute or two where we'll start off with, um, kids can even do this, let's say, in when I have them with me here, I'll usually have a few either like stones or like I said, unifix cubes, and I might just give them a word and I have them pull down a cube for each phoneme that they hear in the word. So if the word is cat, they'll pull down a cube as they give me each sound and they'll say cat, and then they'll blend the word and they'll say cat. If they're doing this at home online, there are some really great resources where kids can just pull down um, some websites where they can just pull down some, some circles. I've had kids just grab three paper clips and they'll do it at home like that. And then, so after they, um, after they segment the word cat, I might say, great, what is the last sound in cat? And they would tell me, T and I said, great, can you tell me where in cat is the K sound? And then they would say, it's at the beginning. So we might, I might ask a few questions about one word and then I might transition and give them a new word and I'll say, great, put your, push your cubes back up. Our next word that we're going to practice is um, right. And then with a word like this, because this is done at the sound level, we're not worrying about letters right now. They would just pull down her, I, t, making sure that we just have those three sounds. They don't have to worry about whether or not it's my right hand or they're writing something, whatever type of word it is. And then again, it might be more questions like, okay, great. You gave me the word, right. How would you change the word right to bite? And then they would say, they might switch out a cube and they would go, and then they would go, so just basic, basic things like that to, to pretty much warm up the lesson, getting us prepared for, for segmenting when we're reading or segmenting sounds when we're spelling. Awesome. I love those examples. And you said that SLPs can diagnose dyslexia. I remember talking about this with my previous guest that I had on. Um, we had a pod course on dyslexia as well. And um, I'm curious to know, like, from your perspective, I know you're not doing the diagnostics uh, or the assessments at this point, but do you know about that process if an SLP is interested in maybe doing this? Yes. Do you mean about the process in terms of becoming, being able to do it or what is involved in a dyslexia evaluation? I guess both. Okay. When I was in the schools, I became familiar with a certain battery of tests. Since then, I know new tests have come out as, as they always do. And I know one of the, a really great test that has come out is called the TILS. And I know that if, if you're interested in it, a lot of SLPs and a lot of reading specialists are using this test now. And I have heard that they have a really great online sort of web webinar that, that teaches you how to administer to the test, how to go through and score the test. And I know, again, this is just a component of it, but I think a lot of the tests that you could potentially use have really great resources online. And then what a dyslexia evaluation involves, it's going to involve that phonological awareness. And then you're going to want to look, a big component of it is rapid automatic naming receptive vocabulary, you're going to want to look at their expressive vocabulary, definitely some basic phonics skills and some decoding. So how they're able to use symbol sound associations to identify real words and non-words. So those non-words are especially important because maybe they do have a large vocabulary, but looking at the non-words, you're able to see, oh, do they know this specific reading or spelling rule? You want to look at their oral reading fluency. I like to look at both oral reading fluency out loud and their silent reading fluency, especially as they get older. Uh, you want to look at their spelling and then you want to look at their writing as well.
Wow. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was really helpful. So let's talk about special considerations that SLPs need to keep in mind when treating dyslexia. Certainly. So I think a couple things come to mind. The first is the dyslexic brain is so fascinating. And these kids, although reading and spelling and writing can be such a challenge for them, the strengths that they have are incredible. So I think it's very important when you're working with, just like with any kid that we work with, really taking the time to, to figure out what their likes and their dislikes are, figuring out the ways in which they learn best, figuring out, you know, what sort of, of multi-sensory way will really um, get their attention, what's motivating to them, because these kids are, are so smart and they're so capable and they just, they, they struggle with this area. Their brains are wired in a different way where reading and understanding basic reading is going to be really hard for them. So while our brains are wired in a way where oral language is, is something that, that will come, um, you know, reading and written language hasn't always, it, it hasn't always been around. So knowing that we have to explicitly teach it is really important. Um, so I think another really important consideration is one of those um, principles of OG that I mentioned earlier. It's how explicit we have to be with these kids. Unfortunately, reading instruction in the past has taught some of these students, okay, you see a word, why don't you guess what the word is based on the first letter? And we, we know as speech pathologists, you know, we have silent letters, we have letters that, that don't make the sounds that we would expect them to. So encouraging kids to do this is just going to set them up for failure. So I think these kids have also been taught that, you know, another strategy they might've been taught in schools is why don't you just guess, um, guess the word based on the picture. So they've been taught strategies that could frustrate them, that could discourage them, and that don't really help them become better readers. So something to really take into consideration when we're working these kids is how explicit we have to be. And something that I have really loved about specializing in this and something I feel like I've learned a lot is uh, I've learned a lot about what these explicit reading rules are and, and just certain things that I had no idea about. Um, so as I'm growing in this and as I'm learning more about these rules so that then I can teach them to these kids, it's really great to see when let's say they're reading the word or excuse me, let's say they're spelling the word sail as in to sail away on a boat and we're talking and they're not quite sure how to spell it. And I say, okay, tell me what vowel team says a in the middle of a word because I have explicitly taught them that the vowel team AI says A in the middle of a word, they're able to recall, oh, I know this rule. I know that AI says it. And they just are able to build a game as it might've been made out to be because now they have this, this great toolbox full of, of learned rules and strategies. That's such good advice. Um, so Does can that you make just... sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah. Can you recap just uh, really quick what you had said in terms of the considerations um, I had that you have to be explicit and you gave very detailed information uh, about being more explicit and the first suggestion that you had made? Yeah, um, I would say that my first suggestion is just taking the time to recognize what sorts of other academic and social interests you're student has and finding ways to incorporate those into the lessons. So for example, when I was working in a middle school, I had a student who loved hockey. She loved hockey. So finding a way when I would create her word list of um, the review words that we would, we would read of previously learned concepts, I would try, I would Google hockey words and try and incorporate those to increase that buy-in. So I would just say, really taking the time to recognize their other academic strengths and their other social interests. Okay, great. Thanks for reiterating that. So now let's talk about your favorite go-to resources for working with this population. Definitely. So I have found a few really fabulous resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. There is a a woman, her name is Emily Gibbons, and she is um, certified. 
she's at the certified level of the Orton Gillingham Academy, and she is just fabulous when it comes to creating resources. She always has really informative blog posts. Um, she can be found at the Literacy Nest. So I, I would say if you're interested in learning more about how to work with kids with dyslexia, or if you are just looking for more general resources, she's a really great resource. As I mentioned before, the International Dyslexia Association website, I think if you're looking for a general overview about, you know, what dyslexia is, how to, how to potentially do a screening, how it relates to oral language, they have a whole list of, of general fact sheets that are, are very, very helpful. Um, and then I would say my other go-to resource, and I don't know how helpful this is, but the, the opportunity to find a mentor and to work with a mentor to me has been just such a wonderful experience. You know, I think the, the associate level course that I took was great and I learned a lot of information, but everyone said, if you really want to improve, if you really want to learn more, I recommend doing the practicum, not only to get the certification, but to really have that experience. So, you know, my mentor and I have had our, I, I've submitted awful lessons to her and I've submitted really great lessons to her, but from all of it, you know, she's been able to point out things that went well, things that didn't go well, different ways I could improve. She's pointed me to different resources or to different books that I could read to different strategies. So I would recommend either through the Orton Gillingham Academy website or the IDA looking for someone in your area who you could possibly take a class from, or if you want to do the practicum, finding a mentor who can, who can kind of guide you along the way. Those are great. So when you say find a mentor, did you get this mentor just by signing up for the program or did you have to actively pursue the mentor? That's a really good question. So the fellow who I was working with here in Colorado, when we took the class, we had to make the decision at the end of the course, if we were interested in doing a practicum or if we were not interested in doing it. Once I said, yes, I wanted to do the practicum, she had a few other um, mentors that she had worked with. And we could kind of, we had the opportunity to chat with a few of them. And then after that, I said, oh, um, this mentor and I, we really clicked. I would love the opportunity to work with her. She works um, in Iowa. So um, she and I have been chatting through through there, but by taking this course, I was able to, to find a mentor through them. I did not have to independently find them. I did have to independently find my own student who I have been working with. Um, and I told I kind of reached out through some, some mommy and me groups, through some Facebook groups, through some people who, um, friends who worked in public schools. And I just kind of said, this is what I'm looking at doing. If you know of anyone, if you could just pass along my name. And then once I met at that point, I had met two or three families who were interested and I just told them I am completing a practicum, which means I will record about 10 of our sessions over this period of time. I will get some feedback and I just kind of got the families okay before we started. That's so helpful. I love the suggestions that you gave for finding a student, which was the mommy and me groups, the Facebook groups. I think going back to our topic about the private practice setting and treating dyslexia, um, this can be very applicable, not only for finding clients who have dyslexia, but any other type of client as well. That, that was a really great suggestion. Thanks. Awesome. So is there anything else that we haven't covered about dyslexia that you wanted to discuss? Another interesting topic I just want to cover quickly are some myths about dyslexia. And one of the myths is that if we just give the child more time, then eventually they will learn to read. And I... Oh, this myth just bothers me because early intervention and early identification of dyslexia is so very important because every year that a kid spends falling behind in reading and, um, you know, every year that a child is not diagnosed, it just compounds. It just, um, it creates more of a problem and kids fall further behind when it comes to not only learning how to read, but there's this transition, you know, after third grade, you hear that there's this transition from learning how to read, um, to reading to learn. So there's a lot more emphasis on you should learn how to read now. Um, excuse me, you know how to read now. And at this point you will be 
um, reading for the sake of learning. And a lot of kids, you know, they just fall further and further and further behind. And oftentimes these kids are very unlikely to catch up independently um, without early intervention. So it's really, really important that we don't just ignore these signs, that we identify these kids early and we get them the help that they need early too. Um, And I think kind of going hand in hand in this is this idea that some kids can just um, outgrow it. But um, it's been proven, you know, that that the, the brains of dyslexics are different. So they aren't going to outgrow it. Um, it's just something that they will learn strategies. They will learn um, intervention will help them and it will help them become better at reading, spelling. And um, but it's just not something that they will ever outgrow. Another myth that is common is that it has to do with their overall intelligence. Um, it has to do with the intelligence of kids with dyslexia, and this is just absolutely not true. You know, dyslexics have amazing minds, um, are very intelligent kids, and they just tend to have um, difficulty with reading and writing where other kids have difficulty in in other areas. And oftentimes, because of their disability, they um, will learn these strategies and they will work just as hard, if not harder, to to overcome it. Um, and I would say the, the last myth is that dyslexia is a vision problem, and it most certainly is not a vision problem. Um, you know, there's this idea that kids will see or write letters and numbers backwards. Um, and just as I mentioned before, dyslexia is a language-based learning disability It is not a vision problem. It is not something to do with their vision. Um, Some families believe that in order to get a dyslexia diagnosis, you need to go to an MD, to a medical doctor because it's a vision problem, and that's how they would get the the diagnosis. And unfortunately, that is just not true. Um, So just a few more um, little tidbits about dyslexia. Um, I would say that... One of them, which I mentioned earlier, is just really the importance of multisensory instruction. And again, these are these multisensory multisensory strategies and overall multisensory instruction can benefit all kids who are learning how to read and write and spell. It's not just something that you know needs to be tailored specifically to kids with dyslexia. Um, you know, these these strategies can really benefit all kids. I've had parents ask me before, parents of some of my kiddos who are teachers, and they've said like, oh, I really like this activity. Do you think this can work with my, my gen ed class? And it's like, absolutely, this will work. A lot of them are, you know, multisensory can sometimes be more engaging. It can mix things up for kids. And it is absolutely something that, um, that can be applied to a full class. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you so much for clarifying that for us. Can you actually share some other questions that you often get related to this topic? Yeah, the first question I have is, what are some early signs of dyslexia? And this is a really great question. I would say some of the early signs include difficulty remembering letter names in the alphabet. Sometimes students can have difficulty recognizing rhyming patterns, um, and this can really be shown when students struggle to learn nursery rhymes. They may have difficulty recognizing and reading some simple words or maybe recognizing important words like their name, and they can also struggle to make the connection between sounds and letters. And I would say another really important red flag that um, you can always kind of keep in the back of your mind when working with students is whether or not there's a family history of dyslexia. And this can either be a family history where there has been a firm diagnosis of dyslexia, or sometimes when I talk to parents, families will say to me, I really struggled with reading and spelling, or it was something that my parents thought was there, but I never had a formal diagnosis. So even if families say there isn't a real diagnosis, I always ask um, if there's a suspected diagnosis or suspected difficulty with reading. The next question is, what are some ways to help dyslexic students in the classroom? I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I would say one of the most important things and one of the best ways to help these kids succeed is giving them the opportunity 
to access textbooks and just their everyday reading books um, via audiobook. So giving the opportunity for them to listen to these books is just so helpful to them. I think it gives them exposure to really good vocabulary. It gives them access to the same context that they are reading in school without them having to always read that book. So always giving them access to audiobooks. I also encourage families, you know, if they just want to listen to an audiobook as a family at home every night, that's a really good way to to um, help build a good vocabulary, help to practice comprehension without necessarily the frustration of reading. Oftentimes, too, I will give some sort of skeleton notes um, or fill in the blank notes, or maybe the notes are already completed and the students have to add pictures. This is a really good way to, when all other students are taking notes in class, you know, we still want these students to be involved. This is just another way for them to be involved without getting frustrated or without uh, feeling completely lost. I also think always providing these kids with lots of visuals. Um, and then giving them either speech to text um, or text to speech. And then finally, when it comes to the writing process, really helping these kids brainstorm and really teaching them how to brainstorm first in a way where they're just brainstorming orally and you are being their scribe for them or teaching them really good pre-writing brainstorming strategies. So in the school that I used to work in, we implemented brain frames, which is a very um, flexible and customizable way to organize your thoughts, to brainstorm, uh, and to create graphic organizers that aren't necessarily um, not rigid, but I would say a lot of these students, when you're working with graphic organizers, sometimes the bubbles can be really small and these kids can have difficulty fitting the words in there. Or sometimes kids get so so stuck because a graphic organizer might have five bubbles that they have to fill in, but they only have three ideas. And in that case, they can just get really um, stuck and not be able to move forward. But what brain frames, what's so great about it is it allows kids to express their ideas in a very flexible and customizable way. So that's another resource. If you're interested in learning about it, I highly recommend looking it up. Um, Another question is, what are some of the things you work on with students with dyslexia? So um, you always do a phonological or phonemic awareness activity. Um, We typically always will do that visual drill where students are shown either a letter or a group of letters. They have to say the sounds of um, the sounds that the letter makes. So I think I mentioned this earlier. For example, if they saw on a note card, they saw the letters A, Y. The student would say, A, Y says A. Um, And then I could ask a follow-up question. I could say, great, when do we use the spelling A-Y in a word? And they could say, we use A-Y at the end of a word. And then they could chime in and say, we use A-I at the beginning or the middle of a word. So another way to just practice and recall these learned rules that these students um, have had, that, that, that they have explicitly learned. We will always do reading at the word level. We will often do reading at the sentence level just to practice some fluency to um, either fluency phrases or fluency sentences. We always do some sort of oral reading, whether or not that's a um, a controlled decodable passage or it is a passage, um, excuse me, or it's from like a novel that I'm reading with my students. Then on the spelling side or on the, the writing side, we'll do some handwriting. We'll typically do some cursive. We will do the auditory drill, which is kind of the the partner to the visual drill. So I will say, tell me what says A, and the student will repeat the sound A, and then they will write down all of the letters or groups of letters or patterns that say A. So for example, they would say A, as they're writing this, they would say A consonant E says A, A I, and then A Y are the things that say A, or the things at this point they most likely have learned say A. Then we would do um, spelling at the word level. We would then do spelling at either the sentence level or the paragraph level, depending on how old they are. And then we always do some sort of explicit syllable division. So sometimes the syllable division practice can be in their review reading words. Sometimes it can be, um, especially if they had just learned a new syllable division pattern, it can be practicing those words, going through a set of steps to properly divide the syllables. Awesome. Thanks for sharing those questions. 
I think that we covered a ton in this episode. And if anybody has questions, they can certainly reach out to you. So where can everybody find and connect with you? So I am on Instagram at Lauren Klein SLP, and then I have some contact information listed there as well. Okay. Wonderful. And your website is easy to find through the Instagram as well. Yes, it is right there. And if not, it's www.lkslo.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lauren. This has been amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. All right. Until next time. Guess what? This episode is worth 0.1 ASHA CEUs. However, listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs or a certificate. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs for this pod course, please visit tasseltogether.com to create an account, pick a membership level, and access the course materials. Tassel will automatically submit your course participation to ASHA once the course requirements are met. Remember to check the course details section under each course on the website for completion deadlines. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this pod course. <laughs>